Today on The Black Goat, we talk about science and self-help and the balance between outreach and overreach, and a letter about being treated with respect as a first-year professor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. As always, I'm with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier, but I'm only with Alexa and Samin virtually. Alexa and Samin, lucky dogs, are with each other physically. We had to take a break from doing the puzzle, which we've been doing for like, um, we did <laughs> many. It hours. was like, yeah, it was like midnight last night, which is past my bedtime. And I like looked at the clock and I was like, oh my gosh, it's midnight. But I was so absorbed in the puzzle that um, I didn't realize. We're almost done. Uh, you know, to be like to go all the way on a trip to like Alabama from California and then like hang out and do puzzles is it's one of those things that like when I was like 23 I would have been like god what are you doing mm-hmm. but now I'm like that sounds kind of fun well, I was a much more boring 23 year old than you were <laughs> <laughs> like why why were you out drunk until 4 a.m with your friends or whatever but, uh, yeah, sounds like you guys are having a good Wait, time. Wait, I mean, are you saying we weren't drunk? <laughs> oh, were you drinking and puzzling? Oh, Whoa, no you wonder. do puzzles sober, Sanjay? <laughs> <laughs> one of us was drinking, the other one was sober. But, I mean, we're both relatives. Well, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll leave it to you to choose who, which was a which. <laughs> That's actually kind of a toss-up. That's a, I'm not, I, I'm not sure I Yeah, there have been different periods on this trip. Like, at another meal, a different one of us drank and the other didn't. That's true. It's more balanced than you might expect. Yeah. yeah. No, I can. I'm. I'm actually. I'm not like. I think the. I mean, there. There. I think there is data that like extroversion is mildly correlated with like substance use. But uh, so I guess that would be my prior to be like a little bit maybe Alexa's more likely. But you know, I I've seen Samin throw back a slug <laughs> of whiskey before we record the podcast, so I I know how she works. This yeah. is true. Yeah. My drinking's usually strategic. I think you're on average more drunk on the podcast than I am. That's true, but I think you're on average more drunk <laughs> in life than I am. <laughs> so Samin, you were uh you were mentioning before we started recording that uh you're you're getting caught up on your popular culture. Yeah, I just watched the movie The Devil Wears Prada with my mom <laughs> over break. We ran out of things to do. It was like like almost two weeks, just me and my mom. It was intense. Um, you ran out of puzzles. We, I, I gave up on the puzzle I started last time I was with my mom. Um, but yeah, so we watched The Devil Wears Prada. And so I have a question about this movie. I asked my mom and we disagreed. I thought, so like the main plot is this youngish woman straight out of college and she has like career aspirations and she gets this job as an assistant to this big wig fashion woman played by Meryl Streep. And so the job is like all consuming and her boss is kind of hard on her or very hard on her. And so it puts a strain on her relationship, and eventually they break up, her and her boyfriend. And I thought the boyfriend was not very um, cooperative or, like, not very helpful. Like, his girlfriend was in this difficult situation where her boss was being really mean to her, but that this job could open doors for her career, and her career, like, her career aspirations are really important to her. And I didn't see much evidence that he was, like, trying to be understanding or helpful. I thought he was pretty quick to get annoyed with her. My mom thought he was, like, way too patient and he should have broken up with her sooner and that he, like, didn't get mad, didn't break up with her when she missed his birthday. And then it was only, like, the second or third time that she did something really bad that he broke up with her. So I'm curious what you all think 
about this in particular, but also in general, like what a partner should do in that situation or what's a reasonable. Okay, so I definitely can't answer the question about this in particular because I watched that movie 15 <laughs> years ago when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> um, the movie definitely implies that you should think that she was being unreasonable and the boyfriend was patient. So the idea is like she is making all of these sacrifices for work and then and for an unreasonable gets... boss, yeah. Uh-huh. Um I think I'm with you that like uh a partner should be supportive of their partner dealing with an unreasonable boss. Um it's kind of interesting because like there's the the similar situation of like how patient should you be with somebody who is being like overly accommodating of somebody else in general. Um, and I think that's tougher than like when it's an authority figure and you really don't have, you don't have the ability to say no the way that you would with just like a person who's an equal. Yeah. I guess I also thought it wasn't clear that it was better for her to quit the job. Like I thought it could have really serious implications for her career if she quit the job. And so if it was a case that she sh- clearly should have quit, then I could imagine him saying like, well, I don't want to be with someone who like makes a stupid choice mm-hmm. in life. But I, I guess like the part that really bothered me about it was there seems to be this assumption in this movie and in life that like how much your partner is willing to put you as a priority ahead of everything else is a measure of how much they love you. But I think partners have some obligation to try to separate those things and say, I recognize that you having to miss my birthday party isn't a reflection of how much you love me or whether you even wanted to be there. Like you could absolutely love me and want to be there and so on. But other things that are less flexible than I am are that are maybe worthy of some prioritization and commitment and so on are making it such that you had to choose that other thing. And it doesn't reflect on your feelings for me. And I felt like there was no Mm -hmm. acknowledgement of that, 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 that it might have nothing to do with her feelings for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like it's in life, it's supposed to be kind of like a give and take, right? So like you're each sort of bending for the other. And also there are like some things that are missable and some things that, aren't right that where it's like important you have to be there for them mm-hmm. and I, I feel like the, the movie cliche like the the missing the birthday party is practically like out of you know tvtropes.com or whatever like it's which in real life actually maybe sometimes in real life missing a partner's birthday is okay or whatever but that's that's often in a movie that's like a, one of those things that they do in a movie to sort of signal this person's being unreasonable right like then they need to show the conversation where he says look there's a lot of things that it would be fine with me if you can't do them but this one's really important to me then she would have been this is like movies written by samin movies written by samin there there's i took a screenwriting class in college once and and um there's actually a, a term, I don't know if it's like still around or whatever, but I, this term I learned called the kick the dog moment. Um, mm-hmm. And it's uh, at the beginning of the movie when like there's a character and they've just robbed a bank. If you want the audience to kind of dislike him, have him kick an old lady mm-hmm. as he's leaving the bank. But mm-hmm. if you want the audience to hate him, have him kick a dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I feel like like and that obviously depends on, you know, it sort of says something awful about like how we feel about old women um 
but it's also says something good about how we feel about animals i guess but it's it's just this thing that everyone's supposed to know like you see a villain kick a dog for no good reason they're fucking evil mm-hmm. and i feel like this is just like cultural knowledge in a movie like in you a movie you miss your partner's birthday yeah. and you're supposed to know the person doesn't care anymore and seems yeah. like but but that's i would totally miss my partner's yeah, birthday yeah that's exactly what bothers me though is that there's like a prescribed way to show you care well, that can't be negotiated in each relationship, right? Like, I think it should be possible to be like, in, in this relationship, you know, it's these things aren't important to me. And as long as you do these other things, then that's fine. Yeah, I think you were, it was that You were assumption. expecting the devil wears Prada to <laughs> rise above cliches is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was very disappointed. Also, I do think that there's more nuance to the missing the birthday party thing because um, I feel like most people... Uh, don't feel entitled to like ask people to celebrate their birthday so the the onus is a little bit on the partner to be like i understand that this is like your special day (laughs) and so like i'm gonna make an effort to like celebrate it with you because i know that you're not gonna ask me and tell me that it's really important i mean i know some people do like are willing to do that um but i think I think there is some sort of like unwritten rule that you're not going to say like, hey, it's my birthday. It's really important to me. Like, you know, I want like you to like pay special attention to me today. And like, I want us to do something fun. Like it's sort of I think it would be a jerky thing to do to just completely ignore someone's birthday in a relationship. Absolutely. But this wasn't that wasn't what she did. Right. So he shouldn't assume that she didn't want to be there. That's what that's what bothers me. It's like it's not like she was actively a jerk to him. It was a side effect of something that is understandable to me. And I feel like if your partner has to do something that hurts you as a side effect, you should you should try to see it from their perspective and like mm-hmm. understand the pressures they're under and so on. And, and you might be saying that no, this is like I just I don't want that kind of relationship. But and that's fine. Like he could be like, look, your career is really important to me, and it just turns out that I want to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't have those kinds of demands on their time and so on. But instead, we were supposed to assume she was a terrible person rather than like, oh, they want different things out of the relationship. You know what this is? This is reminding me of um, when I so Reality Bites came out when I was in college, and it was it was supposed to be this like Gen X defining whatever, and I I just I, just, I missed it. I didn't see it when it came out when I was in college, and so I saw it like a decade later. And when I saw it, like Winona Ryder's character, there's like Winona Ryder's character is a sort of central character, and she's kind of between like. Ethan Hawke, who's this like rock and roll dirt dirt bag bad boy, whatever, and then like Ben Stiller, who's this like slightly older, successful, you know, and and you're supposed to be rooting for her to fall in love with the rebel, but like I watch this movie in my thirties and I'm like, <laughs> Ben Stiller's like he's really kind and patient <laughs> and caring, and like he could definitely he, pay he, his mortgage on time. He and he and he gives her all the space she needs to like figure out who she is, and she still. I was like, I'm rooting for fucking Ben Stiller in this movie, and I I can tell that I'm not supposed to be, but I am, and uh, yeah, I was just like. I do not like Ethan Hawke was just such a fucking unlikable dick in that movie. I was like, how am I supposed to be rooting for Winona Ryder to end up with him, which she does? And I think I, I don't know. It's been a while now, but anyway, yeah. So this kind of reminds yeah. me of that where it's just like, if you just don't I'm not buy, the target demographic, and it's not the right like context. Yeah, yeah. And you're yeah. supposed to like. There's a certain set of assumptions you're supposed to buy into. Like you're supposed to want her to be the rebel, or in your case, you know, you're you're supposed to assume, of course, you would spend your partner's birthday with them, and you'd put that yeah. above your work. The 38 year old unwed that. childless woman is probably not the target <laughs> demographic for like w- girls who miss their boyfriend's birthdays are horrible. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> should we uh should we do our letter yeah <laughs> sure shift, let's do our letter ready to shift gears all right okay dear black goat as a first-year assistant professor, I find that the graduate students who were already in the program when I arrived often don't treat me as I would expect grad students to treat professors. For example, one student emailed me during finals week to tell me, not ask me, that he wouldn't be turning in his final paper on time, and the email was very informal and didn't provide any kind of explanation. This kind of thing seems to happen fairly regularly. As someone who doesn't want to pull rank, how should I go about getting people to respect my authority? Um, Sanjay, do you want to say that in a different voice? Uh, yeah, I, it's in quotes, so I'm assuming it's a South Park reference. Uh, so, so, so I, I believe it's supposed to be authorita. Respect my authorita. Oh, that's what God. I apologize to everyone for my Cartman impersonation. <laughs> Thanks for that, Sanjay. Uh, signed, just big enough for my britches. Uh. Um, well, okay, so I haven't been in this exact situation, but I've definitely had this feeling before. Um, of feeling like there's like a way that maybe like a graduate student is um, interacting with me um, or an undergraduate student is interacting with me where what I really want to say is like, um, you need to listen to me because I'm more like more of an authority than you. And so I try to like uh, reflect on my my arguments and my motivations in those kinds of situations because I don't want that to be the only argument that I have. Um, I want there to be like some reason why like it's important for them to like in, for instance in this situation right it's important for the like the student to be more professional um, and that's like an important rule that doesn't just apply to them like uh, thinking of me as an important person or something. Um, but there are also times when I just feel like I have more expertise than somebody. Um, and I just want to say like, trust me, I'm older and wiser than you. Um, and yeah, I try, I try not to fall back on that, but definitely sometimes I have that, um, I have that feeling. Um, do you guys think that that's like enough sometimes to just say like, listen, trust me, I'm older than older and wiser. Or do you, do you feel like you have to um, I mean, we're talking about slightly different situations, maybe like in this in this letter, the person's talking about like a student who's acting fairly unprofessionally. And this would be like universally like yeah. universally people would give this person the advice that they should change how they're acting. Um, I think I'm thinking also of situations where I'm even like a little bit less justified in saying like, hey, you need to treat me with more so. respect. I mean, in this case, it's not just that the person's older and wiser, but that they actually get to set the rules. Like, that's yeah. their role. So I think saying just because I'm older and wiser or whatever, have more experience, isn't yeah. a very good argument. But to say, well, actually, it's up to me, and I decided X, I think sometimes that's fine. Yeah. Like, sometimes yeah, yeah. you can say, just because I said so, and I'm the authority figure, and I get to, those, those are just the roles. Like, I write the syllabus. So mm -hmm. that's going to be the due date. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's fine to do when that's explicitly yeah. the role. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's, there's some of both going on. Like, I, I think there are some people who have trouble sort of acknowledging to themselves sometimes. And then there's also instances where they may acknowledge, but other people don't that like, I am wiser, I earned my PhD, like I worked hard for it. You know, I, I learned all these things in order to do it. I have all these accomplishments. Um, and so in a, in a, at the personal level, like I, as a person, 
you know, you're just going to have to sort of respect the fact that I, I earned my way to this. And that's part of it. But I also, yeah, I feel like the the role issue is really important, like regardless, because and there are, I think the professor student situation, the classroom situation is one of these where it's like it, at a certain level, it doesn't matter about the what the per, what the individual occupying that role knows or has experienced or whatever. It's about the role and respecting the role. And um, it's fine if you're a professor to expect people to respect the role you occupy because you do set the rules and you do have power. And one of the things that drives me nuts is when people, and this is often like older men, white, et cetera, people who are sort of more comfortable in life in general with sort of being presumed to have authority are like, I'm all about flat hierarchies, man. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't stand on this kind of thing. And it's like, no, like you, are you going to be giving people grades? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are they going to be giving grades? No. Like Mm -hmm. there's a difference in your roles. Like you, you know, don't be, don't be like pretending that that power differential doesn't exist. And I, I, this is almost, this is like the reverse of it, right? Or this is the, from the other side, the, the, the student not respecting the, the role. And I, I've, I, I've had to deal with that a lot less than women that I know because I think I got more of this kind of respect automatically by virtue of being a man when I started mm-hmm. my job. I saw it happen a lot to female TAs when I first started, um, less so more recently just because I've had fewer classes where we have like freestanding TAs. But any, anyway, like I saw students like refuse to take the authority of the TAs and they'd come to me and I'd, you know, I, I always tried to respond in a way that reinforced the TA's authority rather than just saying like, you came to me so I'm saying X. I'd be like, well, you know, Jessica said X and she's right and you have to listen to her, mm-hmm. you know, because I think it's just like, yeah, students don't do that. So, I mean, for the, but it's a tough position for this assistant professor because like they're, yeah, they're in this position where people aren't respecting their role as much as they ought to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think in this case, I think it's perfectly fine to say like, no, you know, there's a due date and you can't just set your own extension or whatever. Right. and then I think beyond that, it, depending on your relationship with the student, it would also be okay if you wanted to, you don't have to, but to go beyond that and say, also, here's some advice about professional communication, you know, like you should probably take a different approach to emailing professors when you're asking for a favor and things like that. I've done that very rarely, but a couple of times in my time as a professor, I've like taken a grad student aside usually over email and said like hey by the way like one thing I noticed in our interaction was that sometimes you were quite informal and even you know did these things or like I tried to be specific and say like I think that might rub some people the wrong way in the future and you may want to think about um yeah like acting a little bit more professional basically I'm really really reluctant to do that and I especially feel bad because I think that I've gotten the feedback and evaluations and stuff that I'm not very approachable. So I try to compensate by like telling people they can call me by their first name and by my first name and generally like not trying not to seem super authoritarian or whatever, because I feel like I also already by default get a decent amount of deference and so on. Mm -hmm. But so then when 
someone like goes too far and I call them on it, I feel a little bit like I set a trap for them. Like I was like, yeah, we're it's fine. Like it's cool. I'm cool. Whatever. And then they're, mm-hmm. they get go too far. And then I'm like, wait, no, I'm not that cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel a little bad about that. But I try to frame it as like, yeah, this might be helpful to you. And like, I'm fine with it. Like I, you didn't hurt my feelings, but like if you do this a lot, you'll, you might run into people who won't like it. I've started to do that kind of thing. Like, I mean, I guess call people out on things like that more often. Um, and it's because, so I try to take the approach of assuming that the reason that they did the sort of like unprofessional or maybe sort of like, like marginally disrespectful thing that they did was because they're not aware. Um, and I think that is often true, especially when you're dealing with undergrads. Um, so. I like recently had an undergraduate uh, student who was like trying to set up an appointment to meet with me and they like emailed me and were sort of demanding and wanted me to meet with them like the next day um, at like a busy time of year and I replied and then they didn't like they didn't respond to my reply until like a week later and they were like oh sorry I just saw this Um, and I was like uh when you do that kind of thing, it makes me feel like <laughs> <laughs> like your meeting with me is not an important priority to you, which makes me reluctant to want to help you. Um, so, like, I don't think as much in like a like a scolding or like do you know who I am kind of way, but I have tried to be clearer. Like, like I got I felt offended when this happened. Like, if you do this kind of thing to other people, they'll also feel offended probably. Um, you may not realize that, but um, because I think that it's easy to go like a pretty long time without having people call you out on things yeah. like that. Um, yeah. And and the few times I have like expressed that to somebody, they were they were responded by very appropriately telling me like where they were coming from and why they had used the, that like whatever language or things like that. And there was always a reason, and I understood that it was like actually a tension between two professional motives or pushes or whatever mm-hmm. and so then I understood better where it was coming from but I think actually the feedback that they they lean too much in one direction over yeah anyway I think the feedback was helpful because they were actually intentionally doing that for a reason but they just had miscalculated mm-hmm. how to balance the different reasons yeah I also think like your point Sanjay about the relevance of gender um is important because I think so in the situations where I have this feeling like I just want to say to somebody listen, I know better than you. I do think there's often this undercurrent of feeling like, and this actually doesn't happen to me very often. I think generally um, I I rarely have the feeling like that people aren't treating me with respect. But the few times that it does, I think I have this feeling that the person would treat me differently if I um, were a man or were older. Um, and that's where the like, like I just want to be like, I'm a professor, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the... This this exposes so much how just how much of a like tax on mental energy is exerted by these structural differences, right? Because I think what you guys are describing is a really good, in some sense, in one sense, it's a really good way to approach it, which is to treat it as a learning opportunity for the student, to treat it as advice, and it's a as a way like I want you to know like in your interactions this is how you're coming across and I've 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 seen women respond to things like that where they they'll also say like you know for example you you called me first name but I saw you calling this other professor professor last name 
and you should know that there is research showing that this happens disproportionately to women and your behavior could be interpreted as part of this pattern, like really sparing the person's ego. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very generous thing to do for somebody. And it's such a tax on people's effort to like be diplomatic and to spare the person's feelings and to phrase it just right. And so I do think on the one hand, like I, I think like if you're in that situation, that can be good advice and it can be a thing you do to like preserve your relationships with the students and to not become known as the bitch who wants to, you know, stand on her authority and whatever. Um, and on the other hand, it's just it's another sign of unfairness that, uh, you know, I think like and I, I mean, I've been in situations where I've had to do stuff kind of like that, but uh, but I don't think nearly as much or with as high of stakes as younger female colleagues who've been in those situations. Yeah, just as a somewhat tangent, but a reflection, I think it's since I cut my hair, I get it more. I've been told probably at least a half a dozen times in the six months since I cut my hair that I don't look like a professor, just like point blank when someone <laughs> finds out. I, I usually say like I work at UC Davis or something like that if I'm in, like, in Davis interacting with other people. And they'll be like, but you can't be a professor. You don't look like a professor. And I'm just like, I have no idea what to say to that. Like. It would be really interesting to have a long conversation about what their mental image of a professor is and what is it about me that doesn't, because at this point it's not just my age. Like it used to be my age, but now I'm like, I don't look that young that I couldn't be a professor. Hmm. Although with my haircut, I look younger. So that's part of it, but it's a really hard, I have no idea what to say to that. Maybe we should do that, (laughs) like Uh a chit chat on that sometime. (laughs) Because I'm really curious what you should say when someone tells you you don't look like a professor. Yeah, I think it has to be more than like, yeah, gender and age or something like that because, uh, like, people say to me, like, oh, you look too young to be a professor. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I mean, I don't know how systematically this difference happens, but I think, like, I don't think they would say you don't look like a professor because I think they would know that I would interpret it as, like, you look, like, too much of a young girl yeah, to be a yeah. professor. And I think that the reason they feel entitled to say it to you is because they else. think that, like, yeah. you might attribute it to something else. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, and I do. I just don't know what exactly. And I'm curious. Like, I actually genuinely would love to have a conversation about, is it the clothes I wear? Is it my demeanor? Is it something else? But, yeah, I don't know. I think you know, maybe it's your puffy orange jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Professors don't wear puffy orange jackets. <laughs> yeah. I've. I, uh, it's funny enough, I've found that as my beard gets grayer, I have the opposite problem. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody thinks I'm not Everybody old thinks you're a dean. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, except when it counts. <laughs> uh, that is that is interesting though the the demeanor thing like because there there is a way in which so you know I I've thought like in these kind of situations where students are too informal or don't you know so I, so there's these like structural factors that are tied to how people code our gender and race and and age and other things and then there's also like behaviorally right. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I've found in teaching is like I like to crack jokes in class and I can be fairly informal when I'm lecturing. And I've I found over the years that students sometimes interpret that as I'm going to be easy mm-hmm. on like the exams and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they get the first exam. And they're like, oh, shit. Like just because just cause he like made a joke nice. in class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm, I'm funny, but I still give a shit. Um, or I, well, I don't know if I'm funny. I try to be funny anyway. 
Um, <laughs> it sounded really Fantastic. egotistical. I'm funny. I'm fucking <laughs> hilarious. Uh, and I'm tough. I'm just the best professor. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so so there there are these other things. And, and it was interesting what you were saying, Samin, about how, like, on the one hand, you're a woman and, and uh, people don't you know, you quote unquote, don't look like a professor, whatever that means. And on the other hand, because of your personality and your temperament and your interpersonal style, you know, you, you play against that type and, and try to, you know, be more informal. And it is interesting, like, sometimes it's hard to know these signals that we're sending because they're so complicated, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, it's possible. I mean, I, I hate to do it for this letter because I just don't know. Like, it's possible that they're doing something that sends some signal that says, you know, aw shucks, I'm not a mm-hmm. real deal, and so you can treat mm-hmm. me this way. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really hate going down that road because it, it's so easy to do that when it's the person's gender or something mm-hmm. else, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it is, you know, and, and I think the people who are where it's most likely to be gender or race, ethnicity or whatever are the ones who are also often the most vulnerable to thinking it's something I did. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that, it's, I don't know, it's possible, I guess. Well, and I think... Um, I mean, it's easy for me to identify with this. The, the person also says, like, as someone who doesn't want to pull rank, right? So yeah. it sounds like there's somebody who is consciously not sending the signal of, like, you should respect my authority. Like, make sure you, you know, always address me as Dr. Professor, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I think, like, I've had some of the same experiences that you described, Sanjay, of, like, uh, I I send out a lot of you can interact with me informally signals um, but then there are some some lines that I don't want people to cross or there's like some things that I think is like not just informal but like disrespectful or whatever um, so our advice is that this person should call themselves hair doctor professor so and so or frown yeah. doctor professor right um, yeah I mean I think the I think the like if you've got the mental bandwidth for it, you know, pulling these students aside, um, you know, if there are ways that you can sort of counter signal to say, you know, to send send the message that like I take myself seriously. Again, not you know, sometimes that's just not what it is, and and it's easy to sort of blame in the individual when it, and that's not what it is. But you know, to sort of be, if there's a healthy way to be aware of that, not a. I don't know. That's uh, that's something I really struggle with. Like mm-hmm. prescribing individual solutions to structural problems seems, mm-hmm. which maybe we're going to talk about huh. in our main segment too. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Wait, one yeah. quick question uh, before we move on, if that's what we're about to do. Um, Samin, would you rather somebody say, um, "Oh wow, you don't look like a professor," or "Oh yeah, you definitely look <laughs> yeah. like a professor"? No, I actually kind of take it as a compliment. I mean, I think usually the people that is coming from are people way outside of academia, so I kind of take it as a compliment because yeah. I think their mental image of a professor is someone like that they can't relate to at all. Yeah. So yeah, I'm flattered usually, but also very very curious what's behind mm-hmm. that. Yeah. You should. Uh, you should. If you ever feel comfortable yeah, and ask, and ask <laughs> you should tell us because I'd, I'd love to hear what people are saying. Yeah, the problem is I'm really bad at putting people at ease when you could easily embarrass them. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not the kind of person who can navigate that and be like, I really don't mean this in any kind of accusatory way, but I'm really curious what you mean by that. But Yeah. Well, maybe this is this is a good time to transition because we usually read our email address and and I just want to you know like if you're listening and, and you've met Samin and you want to tell us <laughs> <laughs> what it is about why don't you take Samin seriously you can let us know letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Um, 
<laughs> also, if you have uh, if you have an actual letter you want us to read, some advice you would like to get, or just something you want to run by us, uh, we love getting those letters. Uh, letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Um, you can find us on Twitter at blackcoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. Uh, we're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackcoatpod. And we're on the web at www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. All right. So for our main segment today, we wanted to talk about self-help and like the... I think this is it's an interesting topic because to me because like um I think a lot of a lot of us engage in little bits and pieces of self help in like discussion sections of articles or in press releases or in podcasts or in podcasts where we're trying to sort of like especially if you're like a on the more social end of psychology social personality or what have you where you're trying to sort of give people like a little tidbit of advice, like what can I learn for my life from this research? Um, so I think a lot, I think we, we tend to do this in little bits and pieces a lot, but of course there's a whole industry and what, you know, you go to the bookstore and you look for psychology and it's all self-help books uh, sometimes. And so we wanted to just sort of talk about like self-help as a phenomenon, as a, a sort of a thing that scientists do, that psychological scientists do as or sometimes don't do, and why do you, and why don't you? Can I start with a thought experiment to ask you guys? Mm -hmm. So if uh, somebody, like one of us, wrote a a popular book that was based on our research, like if, let's say, I wrote a book about, like, self-knowledge research, what we've learned about self-knowledge, and how you can apply that to your life, and it was written by Samin Vazir, PhD, director of the Personality and Self-Knowledge Lab at UC Davis, professor of psychology, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. clearly there would be the assumption that my training, my degree, my professional work is related to the topic of the book. Now let's scenario A. Scenario B, I write a book about lessons I've learned from being a researcher and a teacher, but not from empirical research, but just like my life as a professor has taught me that, you know, like 18 to 22 year olds tend to do this kind of thing because I've interacted with many, many of them. And I know from my personal experience, blah, blah, blah. Let's say that kind of book also said Samin Vizier, PhD, then my role as professor at UC Davis would still be pretty relevant. Like people would still perceive that My authority was coming at least in part from my professional identity. Now, scenario three, I write a book and it's how having a property manager will change your life. (laughs) And actually, I think I should write this book. I think I will make a million dollars. And it says Samin Vizier, PhD, professor of psychology at UC Davis. No one or very few people will think that my professional affiliation lends more credibility to my message, right? So, like, I I think my question is, like, where do we draw the line? So in the second scenario, should we be like, is it any is it relevant? Like anybody can speak from their personal experience. Right. Like, does the fact that I have an official role and I have a Ph.D. and blah, blah, like, I guess if I'm writing about like being a teacher is relevant. But then you can imagine like a stretch somewhere between B and C where it's like I'm writing about personal experiences, including some of my professional experiences, but mostly my personal or things like that. Like, at what point do we drop the Ph.D., drop the like you know, Samin Vizier is a professor at UC Davis, blah, 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 and say, look, this is just, these are just my ideas and my experiences, and anybody could be writing about their ideas and experiences. Sometimes I think that even the scenario A books should be actually pitched that way. Like when Mm -hmm. there's, when the empirical evidence is quite thin, but the ideas are good and interesting. But really, like if somebody who doesn't have any training in psychology had those ideas, they should write the book too. Like the Mm -hmm. fact that you have the training. So like, I'm, I'm curious why we take it for granted that when someone writes up 
ideas and maybe a little bit of empirical evidence, but nothing really, really conclusive. And they put their PhD on their professional affiliation on there, and that gives them some, a lot of credibility and brings them money and so on. Why that's okay when, like in scenario C, it would clearly be weird if they did that and that, and used that those credentials. And where we draw that line? Mm-hmm. Right. Like I think maybe yeah, this is maybe not quite what you were asking, but I think in all three of those scenarios the like PhD will influence like how people interpret the advice, even if the PhD is pretty irrelevant to the topic that you're writing about. But I see what you mean that you're asking like, well, um, when should we stop using that as something that's like evidence of our authority <laughs> connected to our letter? Um, but uh, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with you that um, that are that there are many situations where like even books that are at least partly based on empirical evidence. Um, now, okay, so I'm inclined to agree with you, but at the same time, I know that if you handed me two books and they were, you know, like advice about self-knowledge and one was written by somebody who had a PhD in psychology and they had a lab that researches self-knowledge and the other one was like so-and-so, no PhD, no professional credentials, whatever. I would, I'm sure that I would be heavily influenced by that. And I don't know if that's, I don't think that that's crazy. Yeah, it's not crazy. Yeah, I, I think the, I mean, I'm trying to imagine in this thought experiment, do the, so the books differ in terms of like in your first example, it's, I mean, are they framing the lessons or the whatever the information is like research says, studies say, science says versus because the, the way you described the second one almost sounded like a memoir more than a, mm -hmm. a, a self-help book. It sounded like or, you know, sort of in between, but like, here, you know, here are observations and life lessons from my experience in the academy. To me, that seems I would be fine with a book like that having someone's credential on it mm -hmm. because it's their it's based on their experience in the academy and the credential yeah. says it's there and they're not making if the claims inside the book aren't like studies say you should do this but it's like over the years I like from all my experience teaching I found that when you approach yeah. students in this way it's a good way to teach I wouldn't feel fooled by that yeah I really think it's the like the studies say. And there's good studies say books and there's bad studies say books. And that to me is where I think the credential can really confuse things because people will cherry pick and simplify and smooth over and create a compelling narrative using the authority, not just of their credential on the front cover, but in the narrative itself saying, I'm giving you insights from research, and this is this has the authority not just of me as a person with a PhD, but this has the authority of the scientific process. Peer review. Yeah, yeah, the scientific method, and you mm -hmm. know if that exists and all mm -hmm. that stuff. But okay, so so you were saying that like m maybe it would be better sometimes for people like to not like rest on their like educational or um, academic laurels when they're. Uh, justifying the their the research in their book or whatever um but do you think that people who don't have do you think that people should write the kind of the second kind of book like where you're like hey based on my experience I, like here's some like tips that i've picked up because that feels a little obnoxious to hmm. me 
I wish the first kind of book were written like the second kind of book. Like I think mm-hmm. I would like I think a lot of the studies say books are really just like I've absorbed a lot of research from reading it and doing it and so on. And then this is my like uh, informed opinion. And I have this idea and I think my idea is informed enough that I want I want to share it and you might find it interesting or helpful. Mm-hmm. And that's to me, that's the value of most popular psychology books, even the ones that have a lot that are very heavy on the studies say. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like the fact that they're framed as studies say instead of just like, even though the research is inconclusive, I feel like I've learned a lot from reading it and doing it and so on. And you might be interested in what my opinion is after I've absorbed all of that. Yeah. Right. Do those do those books exist? No. I can't say I've ever <laughs> seen one like that. Yeah. I would be like interested I'm, in reading that, though. I agree. Yeah. Like, I'm the so I'm curious if if you guys have how many self if any self-help books you guys have read or tried to follow like most of my experience with self-help uh, I guess this is this I think this counts as self-help is like parenting books mm-hmm. and they are 98% trash mm-hmm. there's oh god the parenting book industry is, is there's just so much garbage and some of it claiming to be science-based some of it not but like there, it's it's all trying to put on this mantle of authority, and it so much of it plays to parents' fears. Mm-hmm. So it like plays up this potential problem and then presents itself as the solution, and that's like this really powerful formula. Um, and I think that that's true in other self. Although I don't read a lot of self help books, but when my son was born, we you know we would people would give us parenting books, or sometimes we sought them out. Um, there, there's one that we lived by, which is called The Happiest Baby on the Block, which was a pretty good one. But uh, um, most of them are just, they're they're awful. And, and they really just, they scare parents into thinking that they're going to harm their children um, if they screw things up. And then the book presents a formula. And, and some of them cite studies. And you go look at the studies, and they're not good studies. But, uh, you know, and they speak authoritative. And you can get two books that say the exact opposite thing. about Like the sleep training stuff is so, you know, like the attachment people are saying that, you know, um, if you don't sleep with your child, they'll be emotionally stunted for life. And then, the you know, the other people are saying, you know, if you don't teach your child to sleep independently, they'll be emotionally stunted for life. And it's just fucking awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds terrible. I've read two books that I don't think they would technically count as self-help, but one is Don't Shoot the Dog, which is about dog training. But many people say, and I agree, that it's like really useful for, I think, other kinds of interactions with humans too, not just dogs. So like, And maybe a parenting book. Also. Yeah, a lot of people say, I wasn't <laughs> going to say it, but a lot of people say that it's helpful with kids too. Um, it's just like basics of of uh, reinforcement learning and things like that. Um, and then the other one is The Tao of Pooh, <laughs> which I loved. I read it a long time ago, so I have no idea if it would stand the test of time. But I never actually read Winnie the Pooh, but I read The Tao of Pooh, and it was great. What kinds of uh, stuff do they talk about in that book? Uh, they like have quotes from Winnie the Pooh, and they talk about Taoist philosophy and how it's illustrated in Winnie the Pooh. Cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I read... A handful of self-help books and it's kind of interesting because I used to be very opposed to the idea of reading self-help books I just I think I thought that it was like really cheesy and um, and I also probably had some like pride about the idea of reading self-help books and then I came around a little bit and also um, the also began to realize that like some of the books in the self-help section are 
popular books written by people in my profession. Um, so I was sort of like more interested in that. Um, but uh, so I don't know if I have read my recollections of what I've actually read are vague. Um, but I'd be more open to doing that now just because I think like it's good for me to not be an asshole and to like think that other people might have like advice for, for better ways that I could live my life. Um, but I would try to avoid the, the studies say kind, or I guess at least like if I were reading one, I would sort of, um, I would sort of reframe the studies say stuff as just like, yeah, this person's, um, relatively educated opinion. Yeah, I would also, I'm, I think it's a biggest, it's a really big issue with parenting, but in other areas of life, there's these kinds of books too that try to make you worry more. Like, you know, all the things you need to be afraid of or all the things you need to like watch out mm-hmm. for. And I would try to avoid those kinds of self-help books, but I would be open to reading a self-help book about, like I'm a, when I walk through the bookstore and there's, you know, the books about like not giving a fuck or things mm-hmm. like that, I'm pretty tempted to flip through those. Yeah. I don't think I've ever made it more than five or 10 pages into one of those books, but I keep picking them up every once in a while to see mm-hmm. if one of them is going to grab me. Yeah, I, um, I'm maybe I'm just too cynical, but I, yeah, I have a hard time with self-help books. Like, I, some of it is, yeah. The, so the studies say stuff bugs me because almost never you go look at the studies, and you know if it's like nutrition books that I've looked at, and you go flip to the index, and it's like they're making a strong claim based on like some animal study in rats or something, and, and you know, saying like, you should take the supplement because, you know, three rats didn't die in a lab somewhere or something. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of the science almost never measures up. The, the narratives are a little too tidy. Um, and then there's, on the other side, there's so much just vapid bullshit uh so i i read uh i read there's this book called 10 Percent happier that's about meditation and everyone raves about this book as being like the no bullshit book about meditation that'll convince you to start meditating and so and and some pretty hard-headed people i've heard recommend this book some some uh um uh, I think Tamler Summers on Very mm-hmm. Bad Wizards was talking about it, and and you know I was like this is this is this is not at someone who's like a you know namby pamby pushover. So I was like I read it and I was like, eh, mm-hmm. eh. <laughs> it's still like pretty like it's I mean the guy's kind of funny when he writes and it um but I don't know it was still like it got a little too woo woo and, and it tried invoking neuroscience towards the end. I was just like mm-hmm. oh come the fuck on you know, mm-hmm. um so I I just like my skeptic can't get past all that stuff yeah but then the the other thing is just it's so much and this is kind of what i alluded to earlier like so much self-help in that i've encountered at least embodies this worldview instead of values that is very it's just like feeding back to people the kind of cliches from a sort of middle class american white economically comfortable slightly left of center you should be less materialistic and you should be more caring to other people Mm -hmm. and you should do nice things and your life will fall in line and you should be more assertive but not too assertive and all these other things (laughs) and 
And a lot of times, like, so I know, like, recently, for example, Lean In has gotten a lot of uh, criticism recently because, well, in part because Sheryl Sandberg's name is dirt now because of every all the evil things Facebook is doing. But also, you know, she's sort of, it's kind of what I said earlier, recommending individual solutions to structural problems and, and sort of saying mm-hmm. women should lean in and it's like well okay first of all like if you're rich and powerful already then yeah go ahead and lean in but number two like that's not really a societal solution to gender discrimination is to say like women should be assertive more and sometimes mm-hmm. women face backlash for being assertive more and you know um, and and so much self-help is just from that kind of like make you a better person perspective in response to problems that aren't necessarily your problems and and maybe what you should be doing is raising your consciousness and recognizing the injustice around you that's creating these problems instead of like improving yourself and you know putting on your fancy yoga pants and going and drinking a smoothie or whatever (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah I mean so in a way um, there are times when I think like those kinds of books that tell you like you should be more compassionate you should be nicer you should go out into nature more I like I agree that they are basically not communicating anything that hasn't been already overly communicated um but I don't mind that so much because I think like those are those are things that we like all are aware of and think about but it's um, easy to not like remind yourself on a daily basis. Um, so I like, I find myself, um, sort of using this kind of argument when I, uh, like in defense of, um, I don't know if I want to talk, like, I'm like, I'm like in defense of religion. That's not what I want to say. Um, but like, I see a lot of merit in the idea of going to, I don't go to church, uh, ever. But the idea of going to church every week and just thinking about what it means to be a good person. Um, Because uh, otherwise, like, there are not that many, like, triggers to get you to think, like, okay, well, what does it mean to be a good person? Um, I should, like, reflect on my behavior this past week. Um, And I'm not saying that that's what church is for everybody or that that there's, like, not a way to do that um, outside of church. But, like, there is something about the just like reminder that I don't mind about. Yeah, and I think what self-help fills for a lot of people is like, I think we often wanna know what's the right thing to do, either morally or not necessarily morally. And almost nobody will give you a straight answer of their opinion, even even if they don't, like, okay, nobody actually knows for sure what the right thing to do is, but like still often I find like, I wanna ask people for advice and I'm not gonna like take them at their word, but I still would like to know what they really think. And I find that people are extremely reluctant to tell you straight, like, well, this is what I think. Yeah. Um, and I, and for a good reason, I understand why, but so then people go to therapists, but I think a lot of therapists are actually really reluctant to tell you, you know, because of, they're worried that they're gonna have too much influence. You're gonna take what their opinion too seriously, which is also un- totally understandable. Mm-hmm. But then we're left with like, okay, well, I need data points. I need information about what other people think is the right thing to do is I'm like an adult. I can handle like, you know, I know that they might be wrong. I'm not going to just follow blindly what they say. So self-help looks like one of the few places where someone, where someone will say mm-hmm. very bluntly sometimes like you should do this. And I think that's part of their appeal is also, I think maybe part of the appeal of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I actually wouldn't mind reading more self-help books if they were really opinionated, not these like wishy-washy, mm-hmm. like be kinder and be kind of assertive, but like, 
And and I think I read a lot of memoirs for this reason, because I want to know what lessons people have taken from their life. And I may, may or may not agree, but it's still really useful to me to hear like people describe their experiences and say, based on these experiences, like, I think this is like what I now think of human beings or relationships or whatever, because it, you can't even like, I bet a lot of those authors of memoirs who like draw a conclusion about lessons from life and so on. If you talk to them in conversation, they probably wouldn't be willing to tell you the same thing they, they mm-hmm. are willing to put in a memoir. So I think books like that, self-help or memoir or things like that, can serve an important function in that sense, because a function you can't really find in conversation or even in therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in, in some ways, this is going to sound really bizarre and easily taken out of context but it, in this in one sense like religion feels more honest than uh self-help books in the sense that like saying saying like you should be for example saying you should be more grateful to the people around you because it's a morally good thing to do and maybe not just that bluntly but actually like making a like elaborated, sophisticated, thoughtful, moral case for it. This is kind of what you're saying, Samin, right? Like, maybe that, that, like, and to remind you of that and to talk about its virtues, and if you frame it in religious or spiritual terms, that's fine. But, like, I, I find that, the at least the idea of that, or a memoir that talks about how someone felt changed by gratitude, or a reflection or a meditation, I find that more attractive than a book that tries to tell me that some like p hacked small Mm -hmm. n study found that like keeping a gratitude diary raised your panis score by (laughs) half a point or whatever right right? like to me that so so it's not necessarily that the and it's also a more honest case because you know like i'm okay i'm on i'm on board with being more you know with having more gratitude but like sometimes the sometimes i might not agree with the end lesson or I might not be sure about it. And I'd rather, especially when I actually when I'm not sure about it, I'd rather just see the values based case for it right. than like trying to tell me like, you know, mindfulness meditation will do X for you. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that that, that book that, that, you know, 10% happier tried to do in some parts. And I appreciated that it tried to, but then it like slipped and tried to slip in some science at the end. I was like, oh, come on. But, you know, at least in some places he was trying to like, consciously avoid making the sort of like you know medical case or mental health case or whatever for mindfulness meditation just saying just do it because it's good you know do it for its own sake or whatever and I I kind of that that part of it I appreciated because it's it's like yeah get get me to the end point in a in a way that I'll actually that's that's more honest that's not like you're not ginning up some science to support a values-based case which if the science went a different way, you'd still be saying to do this thing. Right. That reminds me of my mom was telling me that in the classrooms at my elementary school by her house, they had put up like a poster about kindness and why to be kind. And they'd put up like all these neurotransmitters <laughs> under the poster. <laughs> and like my mom and I both found this ridiculous. And like, yeah, like be kind because it's the right thing to do, not because it's in your brain or because science mm-hmm. says so. And yeah, so like on that issue, I would think that science is basically irrelevant mm-hmm. and even if it wasn't p-hacked and even if it was totally rigorous and so on i don't think the argument should be based on science or empirical issues but right. do you guys think that on on other questions like self-help related questions that rigorous good social science if we didn't have the p-hacking problems and so on would be 
would have a place in self-help and yeah. advice. Yeah, I was just going to ask you guys that. Like, in a, in a situation where um, the the question is not a question about, like, values, but, like, it is it is an empirical question, right? Like, would you guys rather read a good empirical book about it um, or would you rather read, a, like, a memoir of somebody who is, like, particularly... I guess I want to know what the question... Like, I'm not sure that the kinds of self-help questions I'm thinking of are often empirical questions. Like, I, Well, like, what about, like, uh, if you want to become more conscientious? Yeah. Yeah, so if we had... If we got rid of all the problems with p-hacking and publication bias and all that, both would be interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, if if the book... If the book's advice could actually make you more effective at it. So this is the thing, like I, I before we, we did this, I was I was poking around in Google Scholar and, and there are trials of self-help, although I think when when you look at the RCTs and the systematic reviews, what they mean by self-help isn't necessarily just some book you picked up on a shelf in a store, but it's more like something that's like a structured manual that's given to you by a therapist and you check in with them once in a while, but you're mostly working on your own. Um, but but people have done mm-hmm. trials of those kinds of things. I don't know if anyone's ever done a trial of like, you know, he, here like we're going to randomly assign fifty percent of women to read Lean In and <laughs> see if they're you know they make more money at the end of the year or whatever. I would be super interested to know the results. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, that that's that's the sort but of. But they thing would that, miss like, their boyfriend's birthday parties. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like like if if the books were actually if the science based books were actually like and there's no principled reason why you couldn't actually do that study but the question that would be answered by that study the doing an rct of reading the book versus not that's that's what would convince me is if like it's not just like like if it's really self-help if that's what you're calling it it's not just like an explain the science book but it's actually like being presented as if you read this book your life will be better or your life will change in some way that what i want to what i would judge that by is is that actually true is the marketing of the book. If the marketing of the book is is buy this book, and if you follow the advice in it, you'll be more conscientious. Okay, I have will, a, a registered yeah. report proposal. We randomly <laughs> assign parents to read, and I feel like I've been talking up this column a bunch, of, like a fangirl or whatever, but to read Dan Amber's column about his take on the parenting evidence that says, like, basically, like, don't fret all these little decisions because it doesn't really matter in the long run um, or not. So, like, that kind of evidence, like, I could imagine, what, especially given what you're saying about parenting books, I could imagine like a good parenting book that says like, it's probably better for you just not to worry about whether to potty train your kid at this age or six months later or whatever. Um, then it like all that worry is probably worse than either decision. Um, stuff like that. I mean, assuming, well, I don't know if, the, if there is actually empirical evidence for that, but I could imagine a parenting book that had a positive effect, maybe especially given all the other parenting books that people are reading, like an antidote to those. Um, I think that, yeah, I guess I think there are such self-help books that could be scientifically accurate and make a difference in people's lives. I wouldn't be terribly Mm -hmm. pessimistic about the possibility of that happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not pessimistic about the possibility. I just, I think that that we just don't know. And, and, You know, and I'm I'm skeptical in practice of a lot of the ones that are claiming right. that that's what they're going to do. I agree, yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing, going going back to a little bit from before, that was kind of interesting. I I feel like sometimes the I mean the distinction between a book that's like making scientific claims or a book that's making values claims is often fuzzy because I feel like 
oftentimes the science is being is actually a vehicle for values claims. Yeah, I agree. So breastfeeding is a really interesting example of this where I feel like there's a bunch of and some things I'm really on board with, right? So the formula industry has a history of engaging in really awful exploitative practices where they pushed formula on poor women, on women in in you know less developed countries and that kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, and, and and so and and I have a you know I have a value judgment about those kinds of things. Um, to me, that's a problem. Whether formula is like you know, coercing women into doing something is a you know like unless formula was like turned everybody into a super genius who could never get sick in their life or whatever. But, you know, short of that, like, there'd have to be a really large effect size on the benefits of formula for me to say, like, it's okay to coerce people, you know. And and I approach that with, like, vaccination, where I'm like, the benefits of vaccination are so clear, it's okay to have social policies that are a little bit more in the direction of coercion, right? But but the formula thing, it's like, it w- within the range of what's likely to be a reasonable effect of formula better than breastfeeding or breastfeeding better than formula it doesn't go outside of the range where I say coercion is bad. So that's just like a value judgment I have, regardless of what the evidence comes through as. Um, So I don't feel committed to the idea that breastfeeding has to be better than formula because I'm like, the companies were exploitative. Um, Also, like another part of the breastfeeding discussion that I feel like some, you know, for some people there's a value, this is not one I share as much, there's a value in just like things that are natural are good, Mm -hmm. right? And that's a sort of like underlying, that's an undercurrent in some of the discourse. Sometimes it's like submerged. But that's not even a value judgment, right? That's like, that's like a false assumption, isn't it? Well, good, good. So this, this is the this is where they blend together, right? Mm-hmm. So there's good in a sort of like just in a evaluative sense, like natural is good, and then there's good in a it's it will promote health, it will make you and and those two things get blended, right? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like sometimes the arguments over, you know, is breastfeeding going to you know, make you less susceptible to diseases and have a higher IQ and all these other things, that version of good, which is measurable and empirical, is kind of a proxy for some people saying good in the sense of just natural is better. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see this also in like GMO debates, I think, too, where there's kind of like an underlying sort of, dare I say, moral foundation or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and so, so I feel like the, I feel like sometimes the the scientific good or the the scientific result is kind of a proxy for a something that's really about values and that that's where i would just rather someone make the case like on a values basis um yeah that's a good because then if i don't share that value i don't have to like Mm -hmm. assume that the science goes a particular way and 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 we can separate those things where on the flip side if i do share the value i don't have to care what the science says if i think companies shouldn't be exploiting women then they shouldn't be exploiting women Mm -hmm. Yeah, regardless of whether exploitation affects women's PANAS scores. Right. <laughs> oh, cool. So stay tuned for my bestseller on homeownership for people who are totally useless. <laughs> and, uh, that, that, so, so if you guys were going to write a self-help book, what would you write? So Samin's got hers, right? <laughs> homeownership for the useless. Oh, I don't know. Um <laughs> I kind of like the idea of turning. I, I I'll have to go read Dan Engber's article in Slate, but I kind of like the idea of an anti-parenting book, 
uh, parenting book that just like tells that that's all about like all the bullshit in parenting books. I'll write a I'll write a book on work life balance. <laughs> Maybe we can merge these three into one book. <laughs> Uh, the Black Goat Guide to Parenting, Homeownership, and oh yeah, Parenting, Homeownership, and Work. That's mm-hmm. uh, all right. There's our there's our three part. Mine bestseller. mine is very short. <laughs> <laughs> Get a property manager. Yeah. Have them do everything for you. Uh, cool. Well, should we should we wrap up? Yeah. Are yeah, we sure. good? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening uh, to the Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.